You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. Great. All right, so let me begin by acknowledging that I'm speaking to you from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and future. Obviously, that acknowledgement is always important, but never more so than we're dealing with when we're dealing with themes of post-coloniality, decoloniality, decolonisation and so on. But it gives me great pleasure to chair this discussion today about the new book by Rahul Rao called Out of Time, The Queer Politics of Postcoloniality that was published in 2020 by Oxford University Press. So Rahul is an academic at SOAS. I can't believe you're not a professor, Rahul, that's a travesty, um, where he teaches international relations, comparative political thought, um, politics of gender, and some courses on race and caste. Rahul is also part of the Radical Philosophy Collective, and he recently published a great piece in Radical Philosophy on neoliberal anti-racism and the British University. And I encourage you to uh, Google the piece in Radical Philosophy if you haven't read it already. This book is Rahul's second book. His first was the absolutely outstanding book, Third World Protest, Between Home and the World. And um, that book figured large in my work and in my imagination. It's beautifully crafted and like this one, just incredibly well written, which makes it such a pleasure. And it shares many common themes, or perhaps sense of, a sensibility and sympathies with this new book rather than topics. Um, but it annoyingly proves that Rahul is not a one hit wonder. <laughs> um, he's a marvelous writer and thinker and an electrifying presence when he is speaking. So in some ways, I'm sorry that we're on Zoom, but in other ways, I'm glad that Zoom makes this conversation possible. So I don't really know what you're working on at the moment, Rahul, although I gather from your profile that you're working on the politics of controversial statues, which is great. When I first read it with my lawyer's eyes, I thought it said statutes, and I thought, but that's what this book's about. <laughs> <laughs> and as I've already mentioned to you, he tweets as at the at Dariel, um, which is that's worth following um, Rahul on Twitter. Um, so the two discussants of the book are going to be two marvelous scholars in their own right. The first is Dina Tsovala, who's a senior lecturer at the ANU College of Law. I think many of you here know her, but for the purposes of the podcast, I'll introduce her as a leading scholar on political economy, history and theory of international law. Dina has just published the book, Capitalism as Civilization, a History of International Law, published in 2020 as well, but by CUP rather than OUP. We have a very diverse publication <laughs> range here. Um, and I look forward to having an ILA book discussion very soon about that book too, perhaps when a few more of us have had time to read it properly after this very busy semester. Uh, Dean is also a member, founding member of the editorial collective of the Twail Review, Third World Approaches to International Law Review, which is a truly marvellous addition to the landscape, the intellectual landscape of international law. She's also a great person to follow on Twitter. Um, and as I was saying before, I'm always envious of her 
incisive wit that seems to be at her fingertips and she is at Dina Tsuvala. Finally, I'd, love, I'd be delighted to introduce Dana Sheikh, who is currently a PhD student at the Melbourne Law School, a member of ILLA, I'm very happy to say, and a person who researches at the intersection of law, literature and performance. But Danish, like Rahul and Dina, is also a highly accomplished thinker. He's an award-winning playwright and his first original play, Contempt, has been performed in India and in the UK and actually in Melbourne. Some of you may have seen it at the Institute for Postcolonial Studies in 2019 before all theatre stopped. Um, his follow-up play, Pride, is, I believe, going to be published by Seagull in 2021. So we have our reading schedule cut out for us. Um, so now, given that the book has been published so recently, uh, many people may not have had time to read it yet. So Rahul, I think you've agreed to speak for maybe 10 minutes to give an overview of the book and its themes. And then I'll hand the floor over to Danish and Dina to ask Rahul some questions and we'll leave uh, 10 or 15 minutes at the end for questions from the floor. So over to you, Rahul. Thank you so much, Sandhya, for that lovely introduction. Um, and thanks, Dina and uh, Danish, for agreeing to talk about it. And thank you all for turning out for this discussion. I know it's well after the end of the, the conventional working day, wherever you are, I'm guessing mostly in Australia, uh, but maybe there are people elsewhere as well. Um, so as Sandhya said, I'm going to speak very briefly about the book, um, which I'm still finding quite difficult to talk about, even though um, I've done a few talks about the book. No two of them have gone the same way, and I'm pretty sure this one won't either. Um, I think maybe the, the best way to introduce the, the book to anyone who hasn't read it is to say that it operates, I think it operates on three different registers. And I'll just say something very briefly about each of those. Um, on the first level, it's a story about the Ugandan Anti-Homosexuality Act, which uh, was a very draconian piece of legislation that was initially introduced in the Ugandan parliament in 2009 and wound its way through the legislative and political process and was finally passed into law in 2014. It was briefly on the statute books for about six months before it was struck down by the Constitutional Court on, a, on grounds of a procedural irregularity. Um, the act attracted attention for two reasons. First, it had some extremely draconian provisions. An early draft of the law um, imposed the death penalty for certain categories of offenses, newly invented offenses. But the other reason it attracted attention was because of the involvement of mostly US-based Christian evangelical activists who had played a major role in pushing for the promulgation of the bill. Now, when I first heard about the involvement of these US activists, I had assumed that um, this would mean that this crisis around sexuality would not be amenable to being framed in what Just Be Poir famously calls homo-nationalist terms, right? Homo-nationalism in her work refers to this assemblage in which LGBT rights or the acceptance of LGBT rights are treated as a marker of civilization uh, in contradistinction to those parts of the world that don't recognize such rights and are thereby 
contrast is backward and barbaric and so forth. I quickly discovered that I was wrong. The Anti-Homosexuality Act was also framed through these homo-nationalist rhetorics. And perhaps I shouldn't have been surprised because the location of this crisis in, in Africa, not just in any part of Africa, but in a country that is geographically contiguous to Joseph Conrad's heart of darkness, um, a country that had given the world Idi Amin and Joseph Kony and a succession of other political villains was ripe for framing through Western eyes as the world's worst place to be gay. This is the title of a BBC documentary that aired very early in the life of the story. Um, so obviously this is very problematic for predictable reasons. And the book begins with, some, with, with an account of some of these tired and stereotypical framings of homophobia in Sub-Saharan Africa. But I also found differently disquieting the liberal critique of this homo-nationalist discourse, which focused so much on the involvement of the Americans that it seemed to evacuate the agency of Ugandan elites in the production of this piece of legislation. So very quickly, the challenge for me became, how does one provide an account of this formation that people are calling Ugandan homophobia that draws attention to Ugandan agency in the production of political homophobia without resorting to Orientalist homonationalist tropes. And I tried to do that by, um, by telling a historical story of a series of transactions that take place between the pre-colonial kingdom of Uganda, the post-colonial state of Uganda and Western elites, both in the late 19th century and the early 21st century. Um, this chapter is called The Location of Homophobia and it's somewhat a nod to Homi Baba's location of culture. But while Baba's argument is very much offered in a psychic register, I think my own work is, is much more historical and materialist. Um, so it's, it's, it's influenced by that strand of post-colonial theory, but I think it tries to take the work in a much more um, historical materialist direction. Um, now, of course, many scholars were writing about the crisis in Uganda, particularly Ugandans themselves, and I was not sure that I could, I could improve on the work that was already being done. So I had to find an interesting angle to talk about this very heavily worked on story. Um, and here I was really inspired by Anna Singh's wonderful book, Fiction, um, a book about the crisis around deforestation in Indonesia, which she describes as an ethnography of global connection. And that's what I decided I was doing, an ethnography of global frictions of uh, the Ugandan Anti-Homosexuality Act. And this led me to explore the kind of reverberations and prefigurations of the act in a series of encounters between the pre-colonial kingdom of Uganda and British colonialism, between uh, the Church of Uganda and her sister provinces, as they're called in the Anglican Communion, um, between the post-colonial state of Uganda and international donors, particularly the World Bank and Britain as the former colonial power, um, and of course, between queer activists in the global North and South. One of the arguments I tried to make here is that the civilizationist tropes of homo-nationalism have to be supplemented with a political economy logic of what I call homo-capitalism. And I say this because I think it's precisely because Puar's critique of homo-nationalism has been so powerful and so widely taken up that mainstream Western LGBT activists are shifting the terms of discourse and persuasion 
from the shaming language of civilization and barbarism to a kind of materialist language. And this is done, um, the World Bank in particular did this in relation to the Ugandan Act by withdrawing a $90 million loan uh, as a kind of punishment, um, um, a form of punitive conditionality for um, in response to the promulgation of the act. But it's also done through a process of incentivization. So around the same time, the bank pioneered a series of studies which purported to show that when countries accepted LGBT rights, their GDPs would grow by X percent. That sounds very crude when I put it like that, but that is literally what these reports um, say and try to demonstrate. Um, and I think what I'm trying to suggest here is that the language of civilization and barbarism often arouses anti-imperialist hackles. It doesn't always succeed in persuading states to change their ways. But the hegemony of neoliberal reason is so strong that the promise, the futurist promise of prosperity and growth and wealth in the event that a country accepts LGBT rights is often much more persuasive. And so I'm arguing, I think, that homo-capitalism might succeed as a strategy of persuasion where homo-nationalism fails. In other words, it's more hegemonic. It relies on um, consent more than coercion um, when juxtaposed with uh, homo-nationalist strategies of, of framing and persuasion. So a second register on which the book operates, and I'll speak more briefly about the second and third registers, is that when I shift these scenes of encounter, uh, in the way I described just now, I noticed that I was talking about sexuality almost entirely through other categories, such as nationalism or religiosity or race or class or caste. And I became curious about how it is that one category becomes refracted through another, or in fact, even becomes another. And this led me to think about the way in which we talk about connections between categories. Now, of course, intersectionalityism is, is probably the most important way in which we think about connections between categories. And it's certainly very central to, to the book. But I, I think I try to revisit the idea of intersectionality and present it in a different way. And I do this not so much by departing from foundational work in intersectional theory, but by revisiting the classics of intersectionality and rereading them in, in a different way. So I go back to Kimberly Crenshaw's work, for example, and I suggest that her work has often problematically been read as read through the visual metaphor of the traffic intersection, where we think of categories coming together briefly for a time, but otherwise having not much to do with each other. In other words, being quite separable until they intersect in the, in the body of the person who uh, putatively embodies the coming together of multiple categories. And I think actually that the, the argument is a bit more complex than that because when Crenshaw was looking at the ways in which black women were underserved by the American legal system, she was suggesting that anti-sex discrimination doctrine was mostly attentive to the, to the life experiences of bourgeois white women and anti-race discrimination doctrine was mostly attentive to the experiences of bourgeois black men. So she wasn't talking about a singular axis of sex and a singular axis of race. She was thinking about the relationship, the, the set of white women in relation to the set of black men, the intersection of which does not produce black women, right? Um, and so in other words, the categories were already invisibly intersectional even before they came together. 
I was also inspired by Ambedkar's work on caste, and in particular, a, a, a sort of definitional essay that he writes in the 1920s, where he tries to, so Ambedkar, for anyone who's not familiar, is the preeminent Dalit thinker, intellectual visionary in the independence struggle in India, but also the architect of the Indian constitution as chairperson of the drafting committee. So in an early essay on caste, he surveys a number of definitions and then argues that caste can't be understood except through endogamy. Caste is essentially endogamy. Um, so in other words, his definition of caste is inseparable from the regulation of gender and sexuality. And in turn, the regulation of gender and sexuality is inseparable from caste. And this led me to think about the connections between categories less in terms of say the base superstructure imagery of Marxism, where we think of layers, foundational categories from which we derive other categories, but also not the, the traffic intersection or liberal intersectionality, but instead to think in terms of a Mobius strip where one surface of the Mobius strip becomes another. And, and this made me think about categorical connections um, in, in this way where refracted through certain institutional apparatuses, queerness looks different um, in, in these different scenes of encounter. The third register on, of the book is, is alluded to in the title itself. So this is a book about time and temporality and the experience of queer time. And here my point of departure was a queer theoretical literature on Temporality, which I think is quite well known to anybody who has even a passing acquaintance with queer theory. Most of this work has been very critical of what it calls the chrononormativity of mainstream Western LGBT politics. Um, this is the sense that mainstream politics has a very clear idea of progress and, um, uh, and futurity, and that so much of LGBT politics is about assuring, guaranteeing, arriving at that future. Um, and it's, this is a, a vision of futurity that has also become globally hegemonic in that it now shapes the trajectories of LGBT movements all over the world. I think I quickly got the sense that first, a lot of this work was written in a very manifesto-like uh, language because it had a very singular objective critique and this was mainstream, mostly US LGBT politics. And I. I did begin to wonder if one thought about the queer post-colonial present in more global terms, it would be much harder to offer such singular visions of futurity or even singular critiques of those visions. So here I was in, influenced by the kind of work on heterotemporality that post-colonial theorists like Pites Chakrabarti have um, offered. And I wanted to think about what that would mean in the context of queer movements. It was quickly quite evident to me that queer post-colonial preoccupations were quite different in a, in a temporal register. And I came to this realization by thinking about the opposition between two apparently simple statements that one often hears in queer post-colonial um, um, contestations. On the one hand, the queer phobic claim that homosexuality or queerness more generally is Western. Um, and on the other hand, the queer activist slash academic claim that actually this homophobia that's Western, and this is usually uh, sought to be demonstrated by pointing to the colonial penal codes that uh, introduced anti-queer laws in many formerly colonized states and societies. W one of the most common activist and academic responses 
to the claim that homosexuality's rest time has been to try and demonstrate the existence of same-sex desire in the pre-colonial moment. Uh, because this pre-colonial past is assumed to be safe from contact from the outside world. And therefore, the pre-colonial past is thought of as both a space and a time, an indigenous, um, uh, un uncontaminated space that can be uh, reached into in order to demonstrate authenticity um, and indigeneity. And I think this this kind of uh, response, while understandable as an activist imperative, uh, can be historically problematic. Uh, it encourages a nostalgic view of the pre-colonial past. I, I call this the pinkwashing of the pre-colonial past. And it also leads to a kind of instrumentalization of the archive. We assume that the archive has the answers to the problems that we face in, in, the, in the present. Anjali Arundekar has been very critical of this tendency in her book, for the record, uh, but she's nonetheless, I think, interested in the reparative possibilities of a turn towards the past. And so I became interested in how it might be possible to draw on those reparative possibilities without succumbing to these temptations of vulgar empiricism or ventriloquism, speaking for the subaltern, or anachronism, which is the greatest sin if you are a Foucauldian history of sexuality, um, historian of sexuality. So I became more interested in memory, in, in, in work on haunting, um, and here very interested in the kind of work that Avery Gordon and Saidia Hartman have done, which will be familiar, I think, to many of you. I was interested in the difference between memory, haunting, and history as uh, registers in which to engage with the past. Um, I began to think of memory as, as less didactic, uh, more, more democratic than history. Um, and, and there are particular reasons in the Ugandan context where I felt um, that I, as an outsider, ought not to be purporting to tell an authoritative story about what really happened in the Ugandan past and was much more interested in curating the kinds of stories that Ugandans were already telling themselves about those pasts. Um, maybe just to wrap up uh, quite quickly, there's, there's more to say about memory and I can get into the more ethnographic um, work that um, offers these arguments. But I was also very interested in futurity. And towards the end of the book, I contrast two ways of thinking about the future that we see in queer post-colonial movements. One is the futurity of homo capitalism, which is a vision of the future um, of endless growth and economic productivity and so forth, but is also a vision of the future in which queer activists aspire to a kind of upward mobility, um, up a ladder of embourgeoisment into a kind of rosy capitalist future. And I contrast this with a strategy that trans activists have adopted in India uh, in a case called National Legal, Legal Services Authority, NALSA versus uh, Union of India, in which I describe the trans strategy of analogy and solidarity with uh, the Dalit movement in India. And in particular, their attempt to, to analogize themselves with uh, what are called backward uh, communities in the Indian context, um, a term that refers to subordination in caste terms. And so I, I try and work through the complications of analogizing gender identity with caste um, and try and explain what, uh, what underpins this, this strategy. 
which is the desire to avail of the affirmative action provisions of Indian law in order to uh, unleash the kind of redistributive potentials of the welfare state. Uh, much of this has not been recognized in law despite uh, an apparently progressive judgment of the Supreme Court. So there is still a lot to um, a play for on, on, on this ground. But what I think is particularly interesting about this strategy is that unlike homo capitalism's vision of futurity, which seeks the sort of upward ascent up, up the ladder of mobility, this strategy makes common cause with those who are placed at the bottom of the social hierarchy. And in doing so, it, it, it seeks to destroy that hierarchy itself. In, in the title of Ambedkar's most famous essay, Annihilation of Caste, it wants to, to destroy or annihilate hierarchy rather than um, working within its terms. So I think together what the book does in this temporal register is it's less a temporal manifesto, it's more a kind of anthropology of time. It's interested in what post-colonial queer movements are doing with time rather than the question of what is to be done. Um, and I think it demonstrates the ambivalence of turns towards both the past and the future. Yeah, I think I should leave it there and, and, and not try to have the final word on, on what the book's about. That seems like a very good place to stop. Um, Banish, I'll hand straight to you. Um, hey, thanks, Anne. So um, yeah, Rahul, I had a chance to read Out of Time um, at the start of March, so just before the apocalypse. And then again this month in a very different world where I certainly feel somewhat unmoored. And in both cases, at both moments, the effect of reading your book amongst other wonderful things was a kind of disorientation. And it's a very particular kind of disorientation. So it's not at the cost of clarity because you are exceptionally lucid and your lucidity is accompanied with very generous, very careful readings of your community of thinkers. But there is that disorientation and you identify it explicitly towards the ending as your aim with the reader. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about the strategy and how you place it alongside your commitment to generous non-dualistic thinking. Okay, great. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a great question, Danish. So I think I started from the position that if, if what I was criticizing was Orientalism as expressed through the discourse of homo nationalism, then it might be interesting to think about disorienting both as relocating agency from somewhere to somewhere else, but also as confusing accounts of agency per se. So for example, the question of who was really responsible for the Anti-Homosexuality Act led to lots of singular narratives, the Ugandans, the Americans. Um, and in offering this more transactional account of the relationships between them, I think I was making it more difficult to offer a singular story of who was to blame. Um, there were many situations in which there were circles of influence rather than singular lines of influence. And I give maybe two or three examples of this. One is the directions in which conservative ideas travel within the Anglican communion. It's quite easy to say that these ideas came from the United States because um, evangelical activists in the US were felt they were losing the battle against the advance of LGBT rights on their home turf, And so were looking for more 
of fertile pastures in which to propagate this gospel of queerphobia and do this by giving um, congregations in sub-Saharan Africa money in return for their political support in global Christian denominations. That's the kind of materialist transactional story that's usually told. Um, and I try and unsettle this by suggesting that part of what accounts for the receptiveness of African congregations and clergy is their newfound sense of power within the communion. That this is a moment where for the first time, African priests and theological views are being taken seriously by Western interlocutors, not necessarily because they see the wisdom of these views, but because it's convenient for them to do so. Um, and then I, I also, I think, complicate that even further by talking about some of the intellectual genealogies of these ideas of Western evangelical conservatism, some of which were influenced by conservative revival movements in East Africa them, it, itself. So it becomes impossible to say where this story begins. Um, likewise, when thinking about HIV AIDS policy, it's quite easy to say, I think that the US Bush administration imposed a set of you know, the, the famous story that's told is that when it came to HIV AIDS funding provided by programs like PEPFAR with their emphasis on abstinence rather than condoms, that this was a line that came from Washington. But in fact, what's really interesting about the story is that um, Republicans in the United States pointed to places like Uganda, which had had very good experiences with HIV um, reduction in the 1990s in comparison with places like South Africa and Botswana and used statements from Ugandan politicians and priests to argue that it was abstinence that had worked. So the, the legislative priorities of PEPFAR were shaped by the Ugandan experience. So in, in offering rather than these straight lines of influence, a kind of circularity story, I think it becomes harder to offer a simple and neat account of agency. And I wonder if this means ultimately that it's very difficult to answer the question who is to blame, which is usually the prelude to the question what is to be done. Yeah. I think it pushes me closer towards the kind of assemblage accounts of um, that Puar offers, but I don't use the language of assemblage because I find that quite obfuscating sometimes. So I wanted to tell a clear story, but I didn't necessarily want to offer a simple answer. Yeah, can I jump in on that? Um, and actually to, to pick up on your um, point about, you know, you're asking the Stuart Hall question, which is like, the question is not why they're saying it, the question is why the audience is so receptive to it. And of it. And what I found really interesting, both in terms of substance and in terms of method in chapter five, is that you turn to historical materialism and political economy as a way of restoring African agency, right? Um, which is not necessarily the way we are thinking uh, instinctively about the materialist method, which is meant to be much more like structural explanation. Um, and yeah, I would be really interesting to, I mean, obviously also if you want to, to recount a bit the argument for those who might not have read this chapter um, and also um, the way you came to think about in a sense, um, mater like materialism as a way of thinking and restoring post-colonial agency. Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I've never quite been asked it that way. So um, 
So the, the chapter that Dina is talking about is chapter five, which is about the, the kind of the interaction between Uganda and the World Bank. Um, and the reason it's significant, I think, is because so the bank very quickly jumped in on this story and um, portrayed itself as a kind of LGBT ally very quickly and easily. Um, and I was quite suspicious of this because of the way in which it seemed to obscure the kind of material structural conditions that had incubated homophobic moral panics. Um, I think what's interesting here and where Stuart Hall becomes relevant is that it's become very common to explain uh, homophobia as through the language of moral panic. And, you know, Hall's work on um, mugging, the, the, the sort of discourse around mugging, policing the crisis is, is, is really useful because it reorients us from asking why do elites whip up these panics to the question of why do their audiences, why are their audiences receptive to the, to the panics? And I think this is a really interesting question to also ask about authoritarian populism, right? Not just why do populists speak in the way they do, but you know, what, why do their audiences respond? And this required an account of the kind of structural conditions within which this, this homophobic crisis had, had, um, um, had picked up in a big way. And that meant thinking about the decades of civil war that the Ugandan state had undergone, the devastation of um, its infrastructure, the, the, the way in which the post-colonial Ugandan state had been forced to go to the World Bank and the IMF, the conditions that those institutions had imposed on borrowing, the withdrawal of the state from health and education, and particularly the entry of Pentecostal charismatic churches into that space vacated by the state. Um, and this was a way of suggesting that the World Bank and Ugandan elites in coordination with each other had been centrally responsible for putting in place the conditions within which Pentecostal churches could be very powerful social actors to the point where they had almost colonized the public sphere. So for the World Bank to now wring its hands in despair at the kind of rhetoric and discourse coming out of these churches uh, was a convenient obfuscation of its own role in, in putting in place these conditions. Not only had it put in place these conditions, but it had also welcomed the advent of faith-based development work, um, almost ratifying the effects of state incapacitation in, in um, Uganda and elsewhere. So it, it was a way of saying the World Bank doesn't have clean hands. It was a way of telling a story of, of agency, but in, in doing so, I think it directed us it directs us to the most powerful agents responsible for rearranging structures. So I think I'm trying to tell both a structural and an agential story uh, without losing either end of that dialectic, I guess. Yeah, I was, I was kind of wondering about, um, so a number of the conversations that you grapple with um, come up in activist literature. And I think you're very careful with how you engage with activist literature, which you often use on the same plane as theoretical material and and you you you're very careful with situating your interventions in terms of conversations with the academy uh, at the same time it also feels like you are in conversation with activists of whose work you engage with who whose work you sometimes critique and i'm curious about what you might think that the text offers as a resource to people who are engaged either more peripherally with academia 
or academics who are ingrained in activist struggles. And, you know, because it's, I mean, I, I do think that the concept of homo romanticism, which I thought was quite marvelous, the way you kind of unpack it is, is wonderful, but it's also extremely complex. And, I, you know, I, and it's, it's curious for me as someone who's engaged in that kind of work in the past, what do you think people might make of it? Yeah, so I, I, I think I didn't distinguish very sharply between academics and activists. And I did that quite intentionally because um, so many of the academics who write in this area are also activists and so many of the activists are writing work that is, you know, some of the first theory in this area was produced by people who didn't really self-identify neatly as one or the other. And just also thinking about the spaces you and I inhabit in India, which are very much characterized by this kind of move back and forth across that divide, I think shaped the way in which I eventually didn't distinguish between these different domains. Um, I'm also really interested in the way theory emerges out of what don't look like very theoretical spaces. And I'm trying to read theory out of lots of sources and situations um, that are not self-consciously theory producing, whether that is literature or um, ethnography or, you know, whatever. Um, so, so I think that was one way in which I, I tried to navigate between these different literatures and sources. But coming to the point about homo romanticism, so if we think about I think it's useful to go back to Orientalism, to sides text Orientalism, which actually outlines two conceptions of Orientalism, but focuses much more on one than the other. And this I think has left a kind of legacy. So, so let me just briefly say something about these two Orientalisms. One is the very familiar form of Orientalism where the Orient is seen as less than, right, backward. But I, there's, there, there are portions in the text where he also talks about the overvaluing of the Orient, putting it up on a pedestal. Um, this is the direction of Orientalism that gives us the figure of the noble savage who is uncorrupted by the perversions of European modernity and might represent a, a state to which we aspire. Um, but he doesn't spend very much time on this kind of overvaluing of the Orient. And I think that's what I was, that, that's, that's the kind of foundational work that I'm trying to build on and that I see manifest itself in this discourse of homo romanticism in which the global south can do no wrong and is this innocent um, primitive um, space that but for the interventions of Western activists would still enjoy a kind of queer um, utopia. I was very skeptical of that. I have been throughout the book. And, and I guess this discourse of homo romanticism is trying to build on, on that more neglected dimension of Orientalism, but nonetheless, one that I see manifest itself in a lot of the conversations that activists are having. But I try to be gentle about this because I know there's a, there's a tactical reason for which these kinds of arguments are made. So while recognizing the tactical activist imperative, I'm also trying to take a step back from it and say, what are the larger losses um, in engaging with that kind of uh, discourse? And what I found really interesting, and I might be interpreting you heavily here, so tell me if I am, is 
I think what you're doing really nicely in chapter four, the chapter about Britain, is that you're showing at the same time how this homoromanticism can be mobilized to yet again authorize intervention and power, right? The idea that there is homophobia and anti-sodomy laws in the global south because we, the Brits, introduced them and therefore we have to keep intervening until we correct our mistake and restore these primitive, literally, state uh, of queer-friendly situation, right? So I think like it's, it's, it works both ways and it works for the activists, but also it works it does work, authorizing work for power. And I think what I found really interesting in, in that chapter, which goes back to the introduction about um, the way you revisit intersectionality, is the way in chapter four you juxtapose this discourse to the violent negation of any responsibility for the racialized transatlantic slave trade, right? And you're making an argument on how these reauthorizes basically the distinction between race and queerness. Um, yeah, so in a sense, I don't exactly have a question other than I think that's such an important argument and I think it was so important to like for you to restate it for this audience. Um, I think, yeah, I think that's right. And I think you've reminded me that actually I think about homoromanticism as it's wielded by different kinds of actors, maybe a little differently. So homoromanticism is sometimes used by Western British LGBT activists as a way to re-legitimate their own heavy-handed interventions. But it's also used by Global South activists as a way to ward off queerphobic um, voices in their own context. So it's, it's used in different ways by differently situated actors. And I guess I'm more and less understanding of that use based on how I read the power of these actors. Um, so you're right that in chapter four, I'm much more critical of the kind of uses of homoromanticism by British LGBT activists who say that because anti-queer laws in, former, in Commonwealth countries are a legacy of British imperialism, that means British activists and parliamentarians have a special responsibility to play in, um, in getting rid of them. And um, that responsibility is sublimated into an act of conditionality, as we saw with some of David Cameron's statements and the kind of activist initiatives that Peter Tatchell and people like that were encouraging. And I then juxtaposed this. So there are these debates in the House of Commons and House of Lords in which British parliamentarians stand up and one after another condemn the toxic legacies of empire, including white conservative members of the House of Lords. Theresa May practically apologizes for colonial export of anti-sodomy laws. Uh, and I find it astonishing to see that because when do you hear conservatives decry the, the evils of empire? Um, and when you juxtapose that with the debates that happened in the same parliament, a few years earlier around the bicentenary of the commemoration of abolition. Those debates are much longer, more complex, etc., but also are full of prevarication. Somehow here, colonial responsibility is so much more complicated. Um, it's much harder, to put it bluntly, to say sorry for slavery than it is to say sorry for anti-sodomy laws. And so that generates a different argument about, about why um, about how queerness is read as whiteness and how it, that makes it possible to say sorry in a way that is impossible 
in respect of slavery. But you're right that I'm much more critical about the homoromanticism that we see in that context than I am about some of its manifestations in, in the global south. Thank you so much for this rich conversation and to Danish and Dina um, for preparing such beautiful questions. I don't have to convince anyone in this Zoom room um, to read the book, but for those who are listening on the podcast, I think not only is the book so uh, marvellous because of its substance, and now that I hear you talk about it, I think I've been hearing you mulling over these themes since you gave a talk on abolition in Melbourne quite a few years ago and then a talk on the Ugandan martyrs I, I heard you give in, at Harvard. Uh, some years later and then so it's really ideas in long gestation which is part of the richness of them I think but for anyone thinking about how to read this book I would really recommend it because of its craft as well as its content because it's really beautifully written but it carries many things that we can learn about practices of reading for example and ways of thinking about the relationship between structure and agency, the ways of thinking about the colonial, post-colonial, pre-colonial moments and the relations between them, and also ways of thinking about method and audience themselves. So as a person who is always attending to how people do things as well as what they do, I really appreciated the love that you have put into this book and the care that you give to the texts that you read and the way that you rediscover older texts that people rush past. You know, nobody reads Said anymore. Nobody read, goes back to Baba. Nobody reads Crenshaw. But the idea of going back to them with so much respect is really productive. So I think this book is a model of so many things that even people who have no connection to its substantive themes should read it simply because of the beauty of its craft. So thank you very much for writing it and for being part of this conversation. And thank you, Danish and Dina, and thank you to everyone in the audience. It's been really a pleasure. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Sandra. Thanks, Danish and Dina. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash illa podcast. That's double I-L-A-H podcast.